Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So on various episodes of this crazy show, we've talked about the excesses of the so-called market revolution of the 80s. That thing that turned into the neoliberal idea that the market can solve everything. So many of us grew up with the idea that you could buy a perfect marriage Oh, by the way, someone in the 90s, I went to a personal trainer and this trainer told me that I could just, if I paid a ton of money for these sessions with him, I think they were $200 each, I could get such a ripped and shredded body that I could attract a husband, trick him into marrying me, and then eat whatever I wanted. So if you grew up with ideas like that, that you could buy everything from marriage to social justice to a job that was pure pleasure and more like family— if you could buy wellness and enlightenment and perfect beauty in the form of slimness and hairlessness, then you really were doing it right. If you grew up with these ideas, you probably have recently, if not earlier, come to realize that this cultural creed is not working. And if it's put off people on the left as it's tilted into fraud, abuse, and billionaire worship, that's because it stopped people from unionizing, helping the vulnerable, and living in reality with our good, normal bodies and our imperfect marriages. But if neoliberal excesses turned off the left, another thing some of this money culture stuff did was harden white supremacists and fascists, the right. Now, is it hard to see how? All right, think of how right-wingers and even QAnon nutbags complain so bitterly about George Soros and Bill Gates, how they hate what they call elites for these imagined gothic crimes, including cannibalism. I mean, if technocracy and money worship might drive some people to social activism, they drive these others to really wretched reactionary ideas about why modernity itself, including liberal democracy, education, medicine, books, voting, egalitarianism, women's rights, civil rights, and civil liberties. They think all that sucks. So they kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, they're rejecting the idea of galaxy brain billionaires at TED Talks, sure. But they also reject the whole basis of humanism and the Enlightenment. As we saw on the episode about the red-pilling of Yoga World, with Matthew Remsky, and you got to hear that one. Some granola Americans even went from innocuous ideas about physical flexibility and kindness to toxic QAnon ideas about how liberal elites are eating babies and science isn't true. Now, across the world in Russia, 
a similar group of oligarchs and philosophers have become even more skeptical of American neoliberal ideology, the idea that market capitalism cures all ills. But they don't just loathe the richies and technocrats. They loathe the whole idea that we share a common humanity. That's right, and that's the key. These powerful white men in academic institutions and in positions of political and military power believed that the past was great and perfect, and they were a part of a priestly caste that ruled the earth. And the world since then has turned decadent and terrible, with women and people of color having rights. This philosophy calls us all slaves. So what's to blame in this? Literally, according to this philosophy, humanism and the Enlightenment and democracy. When Vladimir Putin launched the war in Ukraine on February 25th, he first tried to say it was against Nazis. When it was inconveniently clear to him that there were no Nazis there, he tried to join forces with the right wing in the U.S. and say the war was against, what again? Oh yes, cancel culture. Putin even cited J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author and gender essentialist, as his companion in the battle against trans and queer people. J.K. Rowling, for her part, didn't appreciate the comparison and made a huge donation to Ukraine. In the end, Putin gave up trying to justify the war and just kept killing people. So how in the world does this war, which has killed tens of thousands of people, including civilians and children, represent a response to the same market culture that bedevils me and many of the lefty guests on this show who think aspirational consumerism is the cause of wealth inequality, health issues, and cultural crises? For this conundrum, we turn to the subject of today's show, a very strange Russian philosopher named Alexander Dugin. Dugin has long been known as Putin's brain or Putin's Rasputin, and his life's work has been to give philosophical justification to the Kremlin's most violent and dangerous impulses. In the 1990s, he wrote a book called The Foundations of Geopolitics. That's about Russia's plan to reorganize the whole world. And that book has long served as the textbook for the whole Russian military. Dugan is not the guest today. Thank God. Spasiba God. I don't think I could bear Dugan. But we're talking to an academic, Benjamin Teitelbaum, who's written extensively about Alexander Dugan. And it's going to be a wild ride. We're talking about how Dugan, a former street sweeper who believes in the occult, came to advise the most powerful warlord in the world. How a messy philosophy called traditionalism, which has got to be the most boring name for a freaky wild set of fascist ideas that ever was, how traditionalism came to inform a vast movement of overmen and white supremacists, including Steve Bannon. And some of this even gets into the red pilling of yoga world. So to bring this down to earth, if you've got a yoga friend or a gadfly friend, like maybe Glenn Greenwald or Tucker Carlson, one of those people who thinks Putin has a couple of good ideas about the land or purity or gender or the failures of liberal America, well, you might be getting a taste of how capital T traditionalism and Duganism have seeped into American culture. So while Alexander Dugan can sound pretty out there, and he is, his thinking is alive and well, even in the U.S., even on Twitter and Fox News, and maybe even at your local yoga studio. 
Joining me on today's show is Benjamin Teitelbaum. He's the author of War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right, an incredibly compelling book I recommend to all of you. The book explores the role of the traditionalist school in the thinking of figures like Steve Bannon and Alexander Dugan. Benjamin is an ethnographer and political commentator and a professor of ethnomusicology at the University of Colorado. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. Let's jump right in. We have so much to talk about. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the biggest military mobilization in Europe since World War II. And we've heard a lot about the military theater of the ground war and also the economic theater where these intense sanctions have been taken to strangle Russia. But today I want to talk with you about the philosophical theater of this war, namely the influence of the philosopher Alexander Dugan, What's amazing to me about your work is that it begins to suggest how this invasion or, or effort to annex Ukraine is part of a philosophical plan, a, a philosophical and geopolitical plan by Alexander Dugan that he laid out in part in 1997. Tell us about this. Tell us about the philosophical context for the invasion of Ukraine. Dugan looked at the map, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, and said, okay, this, these political boundaries are false. This is a, you know, a, a crime against the actual civilizational boundaries that matter. These are, these are thin, temporary, parenthetical, modernistic political boundaries that, that say nothing about the actual will, the actual substance of, of, of human culture and desires and differences. And, you know, it so happens that the more or less the, the former sphere of the Soviet Union is also the sphere of Russian civilization in his mind. In that um, part of part of realigning the world and also creating political boundaries that matter, that actually are meaningful in, in, in ways beyond just economics or the whims of, of party politics, means that Russia needs to reabsorb the part of the world that belongs to it culturally and spiritually. And Ukraine is just is like the easiest. Of, of of the states in his mind to be to be um you know, reasonably re reincorporated you know putin said at the start of the war the sanctions introduced on his country were the equivalent of a declaration of war and this was a kind of wartime justification for a very radical act the language of putin's own justification was really interesting to me because it was mostly to save people from bullies the denazification um, and he was doing this targeted military operation to help people. That's what he said. And it was kind of giving this like Western sheen of appropriateness um, to this military action. But then two weeks later, Dugan came out and sort of said the quiet part out loud and gave a press conference with an entirely different justification. I mean, what do you think about the start of the invasion? Putin says one thing, Dugan says another. Tell me about both of their approaches to the invasion. Well, I, I would add actually one thing. At the beginning of, of Putin's speech, he ends up with these more, more familiar sounding justifications at the end, yes, and it consumes a, more, a, a much larger portion of the speech than anything else. But in the very beginning, he says, Ukrainians and Russians are spiritual brethren. He, it got a little, little hint of it. He didn't, uh, granted, this stuff is weird. I don't know that really that that's the, the 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 deeper motivation for Putin. But I think when he said that in the beginning, he at least let us know that that's 
those are some of the ideas around him. That this is not about, <laughs> you know, this is not about, uh, you know, oh, those poor Ukrainians, their their economy has been mismanaged. That is very uh, astute to point that out because, you know, it does seem like if, but so. I agree. <laughs> Putin must stipulate that they are spiritual kin because otherwise this whole master mm-hmm. plan is bollocks. It doesn't matter what, you know, an opinion poll says in Ukraine, whether or not they like Russia or what they want. It, it's, it's not about what they want. It's about who they are. And, and, and that is what trumps, trumps the day. That's what justifi- justifies a remaking of political boundaries. Now, for Dugan, there's so much more elaboration in all this. He, he sees what is going on here as a fight of civilizations. And, and more than that, he sees Russia as standing for tradition opposite modernity, for order opposite chaos, um, for, for preservation opposite endless change. Um, and, and, and in some cases, the prioritization of, of identity over, let's say, economic pursuits or, or secular pursuits like you know, freedom or, you know, having a voice or things like that. It's, it's, it, it's much deeper and it, it, it could be, for example, that Putin is just pursuing this war out of, you know, a sense of personal entitlement or just for, um, honoring the, the will of a state. Dugan doesn't want to frame it that way. And he offers for a lot of these figures an explanation that, that adds a spiritual dimension, a sort of eschatological, um, narrative for for this conflict of of forces of 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 good and evil opposite one another. That's what Dugan is bringing to this. All right. I mean, I Ben, I get that Dugan is an influential philosopher, but how did he come into his seemingly mystical man behind the curtain position with the Kremlin? Who is Alexander Dugan? He's hard to put a label on. Alexander Dugan, you could call him a philosopher, you could call him a political operative, professor, author, writer, all of those things things capture a part of his of his significance in contemporary Russia. But to me, if you look not not so much at Putin, but if you look at the broader military elite in Russia that underlies Putin, the 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 sort of milieu that would surely survive, I think, if Putin himself were were to be Oft in some way, that that military elite, its its vision for Russia, its vision for Russia's purpose in the world after the fall of the Soviet Union, it has developed its worldview from Alexander Dugin, and it's and it's pieces of Dugin's thought, and he, and it comes out in different ways. Sometimes Dugin is working in the media, sometimes he's working in in kind of closed behind doors. Let's say lobbying and and diplomacy. Sometimes it's it's a matter of writing textbooks for that for that milita- military elite's training. But in all those different ways, this vision for, of the world and a set of values that is so much further from our political spectrum than we anticipate is is germinating. And that's 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 Duganism to me. So who is he? He is this today. Um, Older, he looks almost like Rasputin himself. Has a long, a long beard, but his life has gone through. He, he has a fascinating biography. It really begins, I would say, when when he's young and he enters this circle called the Yuzhinsky Circle um, in Moscow in in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, and it was a circle of, of of oddballs, you could say, 
outsiders to the Soviet system, all of whom were looking to live these decadent, hedonistic lives and also endorse and engage in all types of ideology that, that would have offended the Soviet state. And that included Nazism in some cases, although it's, you're, you're almost giving them too much credit if you say that they were Nazis. They were really just interested in the theatrical aspects of Nazism that would offend the Soviet, um, kind of the Soviet mythos. And, but, but they were also quite interested in occultism and in, and in what we imprecisely call alternative spirituality. It was any way that they could come up with, um, to to elude the forces of censorship from the Soviet state. And the, and the thinking was, okay, we can't write things, we can't have a media channel, but the state cannot get inside of our souls and our spirits. So let's let's cultivate some some anti-establishment ethos there. And so they're doing that. That circle eventually gains the attention of the authorities and they start to crack down on it. People commit suicide. Some of them are chased out of the country. Dugan himself is in prison, but he seems to have had during his youth some connections with um with with the elite in Soviet society. It was enough to get him out of prison. But he's a street sweeper for a period of time in his in his younger years. He's very talented though. He's he's a he's a rock musician. He he has kind of punk bands, anti-establishment again. He also learns a lot of foreign languages. He learns Italian specifically to translate the works of a sort of proto-fascist named Julius Evola, who also is more accurately described as a traditionalist, and and starts translating, producing, spreading that that literature around Russia and in, in Russian. And and eventually Dugan finds his home in that particular brand of anti-modern, anti-liberal occultism. That's what his real his real goal is. As years go by, he pulls himself more and more out of that underground, that underbelly of, of kind of oppositional, subcultural dissidents, and becomes more and more an instrument of of the Russian state, formally and informally. And that's that's really where we, we find him today. So the word that it, I was introduced to by your book is this word traditionalism, which is so banal mm-hmm. and so uh, and so unevocative, right? Like you could yes. almost think of someone who just likes to seat a dinner table, boy, girl, boy, girl, as a traditionalist. <laughs> this yes. is not what is meant by capital T traditionalism. And, and you may have other words for it, but tell us about traditionalism because that's, I think, for, if, I, if I read you right, that's the real way to situate Dugan in world yes. politics. Yes, yeah, the name sucks. The only, the only hint that you get that something is weird is that you always capitalize the T. So it's originally a, a religious and a, and a philosophical rather than a political school. Um, and it and it begins among sort of Orientalist philosophers in 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 Europe in the late 1800s, early 1900s. By Orientalist, you mean sort of um, Westerners who um, make a fetish of certain Oriental whatever Absolutely. affectations. Yes, I mean I mean it in a with a with a pejorative edge to the term Orientalist. Absolutely, and their their basic belief it's it's a mix of that plus some kind of comparative religion mixed in with, again, some sort of proto-fascist, reactionary, anti-modern, anti-liberal sentiments. But their belief is that ages ago, there was a true religion, the tradition, capital T. As time went on, it degraded. Its insights were scattered among various religious practices, typically the esoteric, occultist brands of great religions, so-called great religions. So we're talking Sufism and Islam, esoteric Catholicism or East Orthodoxy in, in Christianity, sometimes Kabbalah and Judaism, 
But first and foremost, Hinduism. And the, the thing that makes Hinduism a better receptacle of, uh, of more of that ancient tradition is really the fact that, that Hinduism is very old and it's been practiced in a more or less unbroken chains uh, since, since antiquity. What matters for people like Dugan and eventually the traditionalists that Dugan turned to, the traditionalists who made politics out of all this, are a couple ideas that they claim were part of that tradition. One of them is cyclic time a belief that we are never actually going anywhere in history. We're, never, we're not, uh, more specifically, we're not progressing toward anything. We're not going to create a better world in the future than has ever existed. But instead, we're always moving back to what we once were. Um, and, and they claim in particular that, that history moves in a cycle whose primary current is downward. That for most of, most of our existence, we are degrading a truth and a virtue and a righteousness that once exists in the past. And the only way we're going to get back to it is when degradation proceeds to such an extent that there's a collapse of society. And after that, we end up in a rebirth of a golden age. So there's an inherent kind of anti-progressive ethos to that. There's also a rejection of, of mobility in almost any way you want to elaborate that concept. Our identity, our true essence is what we were. We're never really in a state of becoming. We're, we're always in a state of being and simply understanding what we are or deluding ourselves, moving away from and back toward our, our core essence, which is unchanging. Yeah. And just for our listeners, some of you may recognize this from our episode on the red pilling of yoga, where we discussed the presence of far-right ideologies in a seemingly kind of crunchy activity of yoga that has the kind of fetishistic relation to Asian religions that fixates on Hinduism, right? And I'm putting that in quotation marks because uh, it's, of course, an invention of British imperial forces that sought to bring together, make one set of religious practices that, that they discovered in South Asia. So these traditionalists, as you say, they invent some idea that a set of thoughts they kind of lift out of existing practices, must have been there somehow since the beginning, right? That's sort of their folklore, their myth. And these kind of crazy stipulations, though, are just invented out of whole cloth to get to the idea of some kind of Eden. You know, and you hear this thinking on the left, the kind of we're all one. We have these grounded origins in this one way of looking at the world that Joseph Campbell's myth or some kind of archetype uh, created and started, and we need to get back there. This idea seems so harmless at first, if untrue, but it can be incredibly <laughs> toxic. We can, of course, look at at the the flaws uh, in in historiography that are underpinning all of this. To me, that's less interesting than than saying, okay, well, what are what are people using these things for? For for the early traditionalists, Orientalists, the Indomaniacs, as as if we're talking about kind of nineteenth 19th, 19th century Europe. A lot of this was a way to reject modernity. They were seeing, in the same way that that like European Romantic nationalists were trying to look at their domestic folk cultures to to regain a sense of of continuity, of order, control, of place and position in a world that was changing. That that's also what what the appeal to an unchanging tradition in Hinduism was for a lot of these people. It was it was to uh, to sort of find a new fixedness. Um, and a new in, in integralism that okay could sound harmless, but if if this is about if this is about also stopping the movements of people 
or, or criticizing the lack of consistency or ideological clarity in your community in terms of domestic minorities, for example, then we're suddenly we're in, we're in a far different uh, ideological territory. So, the, I mean, that's, that's, this is very clarifying. Thank you. So the idea that movement should be inhibited somehow <laughs> seems to um, inform Eurasianism, the, uh, yes. the, the approach to global politics that Dugan evolved out of his traditionalism. Yes. Um, so can you, can you make that connection? Because I think that's where we get to Putin and possibly what his designs are on Ukraine. When we talk about things degrading, you know, there's a golden age and there's a dark age and things get so bad, to, to animate those categories of good and bad, golden and dark, the other missing piece is that they believe a virtuous society is in some way modeled on the, the Hindu caste hierarchy. And that includes the fact, yes, that there is a, a sort of spiritual elite and therefore that spiritual as opposed to materialistic values are going to be um, exalted as the absolute, as the absolute pinnacle of, of human desire and also that the rest of society will organize around that hierarchy. Um, it sometimes is an opposition in their mind between an Aryan elite and a non-Aryan um, mass undercaste. And, and sometimes a, a masculinist elite opposite a feminine undercast. All of these things are there. The big picture, what matters for Dugan, aside from those sort of sensational features, is that also a dark age is an age where that hierarchy is disintegrated or exists in some, some bastardized, uh, obscured function. And, um, and thus, a virtuous world in their mind is a world of difference. Where yes, the spiritual, you know, the Brahmins are on top, and you have priests on top. That's that's the way that hierarchy works. But the the seeing the the forest for the trees means also that there are castes, there are distinct boundaries in the universe, and we respect them. And different people have different destinies, and they do not contaminate one another. Ah, this is interesting because you know, I mean, to the extent that convert Buddhism in the United States speaks at all to Buddhism, mm -hmm. its story seems to be as a kind of reform of Hinduism or rejection of Hinduism that separation is the worst possible state you could be in. That, yes, you know, not to recognize one's oneness with everyone else and the um, grand unity. The grand unity, exactly. Where this is—it's a separation, but not individualism in Dugan. Absolutely that, not. Yeah. So, so to talk about that. I hope listeners are with us on this. But if you can, <laughs> if you can imagine any time someone has tried to explain to you, you know, why they are aren't drawn to kind of tribalism, or why they think that everyone's one, or that everyone's an individual, or the things they hate about modernity, like technology or neoliberalism, mm -hmm. then you might be able to feel your way a little bit into Dugan's way. Of Absolutely. When Dugan looks at modernity. He sees one principle, or, or, you, or you could say actually two, two principles that work together. One is the universal demand for individualism, and, and with it, um, an erasure of any collectivity in between the individual and some mass establishment entity, um, a global state, um, which, which ends up in his mind being the United States primarily with its allies behind it. But any, any, intermediary collective. It's if it's family, tribe, nation, race, ethnicity, state, civilization, all of those in his mind are going to be targeted by this, this mass, um, this, this mass homogenization. 
attendant to all of that is also the belief that a dark age, an, an age with of the lowest caste is going to be an age of, of quantification rather than quality. And, and the prime and the prevailing political models in this dark age are either going to be democracy or communism. But we think about those as being opposed in his mind. What they share is, is an emphasis in, in materialism, whether it's capitalism, you know, wanting in private wealth or, or communism and, and this, this coveting of, of material wealth. But they also gain their power and their legitimacy from quantification of individual people. You know, the mass measured by its its accumulation of individuals is is, is where power is delegated. So, um, so that all of all of that kind of sets the stage for for Dugan to enter and say, okay, this all sounds like you know, it's, yes, it's it's kind of crazy occultist esoteric politics, but we can actually apply it in geopolitics. We can look to the forces in the world who stand for stasis, who stand for um, tradition, consistency, coherence, as opposed to connections, cosmopolitanism, movement, mobility. And the forces who, who stand for the former are the ones we should promote. Their rising is going to be the rise of golden age. We'll discuss all the ways that liberal democracy diverges with Dugan's ideologies when we come back after the break. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking to Benjamin Teitelbaum about the strangely influential Kremlin philosopher Alexander Dugan. He's trying to gesture at the thing he dislikes, market capitalism and liberal democracy. Let's call it that. Mm -hmm. And he says that he is basically done with, and Russia by implication is done with, and this is the quote, humanity, civil rights theory, human rights theory, this global world. That is a lot. Yes. To frame human rights as a theory to be rejected along with civil rights and along with humanity itself is a strong statement. Yes. What he means with all that is a rejection of universalism, a rejection of the idea that there could be an understanding of human dignity or human rights that transcends an individual legal system, you know, an individual state's legal system, something that we all can recognize as, as being good or bad and that we, we could all, a standard that we could all enforce globally. He sees that as being just, just another iteration of global capitalism, of democracy as a sort of universal political model. He sees it as a, re a rejection also of, of, let's say, enlightenment reason as a, as a universal mode of knowledge. Um, and 
honestly what excites him about this, and it and it really is, it's independent of the military campaign. Things are not going well for Russia militarily. I don't know where this is headed. Of course, I'm not I'm not qualified to say, but it's not going well. What Dugan is going to be excited about, regardless, is this isolation of Russia, this new possibility in his mind to pull Russia out of the global capital system, but also out of this this network, um, this global network that seeks to impose standards of of human dignity and human rights on Russia and, and judge it based on how how it how it behaves in relation to those standards. And also, gosh, with the media, um, with publishing, with with all forms of global communication to pull Russia out of any universal conversation about truth. Yeah. Fantastic. Good is the word he used. He, yeah. I, I'm I'm not surprised. I can hear his voice just as we're saying it right then. Of course he is thrilled to see this. It would be worth, I think, in his mind, a humiliating political in a, a military defeat in Ukraine if this is the outcome. Yeah. So he what is sort of astounding about this speech where he describes a kind of and this is my word, a secession is it really seems like he's talking about secession and not what looks for all the world like an invasion, an annexation, mm-hmm. an imperial gesture. Yes. And um, and instead, it's as though he's at Fort Sumter saying Russia is now breaking off somehow. He keeps repeatedly describes Russia as an island, as isolated. And he, he describes, in a, I mean, I hate to say this, Maybe you'll disagree, but in not uncharming way, he says, we tried to, you know, kowtow and bow and scrape to your <laughs> bullshit Euro trash Davos way. We tried to be all fancy, but, you know, you said we couldn't do it. You didn't want to hang out with us. And so, and that's, uh-huh. he says, good, you know, we're alone yeah. and we're, that's great. And then he goes on barely mentioning Ukraine, only mentioning this act of secession. Yes. Even though Putin talks in terms more congenial to the West, as in terms of this humanitarian mission or whatever, Dugan in some ways sounds less terrifying when he talks because he's talking about a retreat of Russia and not an expansion of Russia. But make sense of that for me. (laughs) Well, I I think they're two separate. They're two separate agendas for, for Dugan. I think the more imperialistic Russia that should spread out and reassert itself. Um. In, in all of its former spheres of, of influence and remake global political boundaries to, to reflect the deep cultural truths on the ground, the anthropological truths, forget yeah. about the, the day's political truths. Uh, he wants that, of course, but I, I see the speech that, that Dugan gave in his communications after as being somewhat more attuned to the military state of affairs on the ground. We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. It, it doesn't seem, he would be foolish to think that like this is, the first step of retaking the Baltics as well, and Moldova's next, and you know maybe Poland. It doesn't, you know, this is a this is a nightmare. They might destroy Ukraine. I have no clue what's going to happen, but this is not this is not you know the start of a grand um, uninhibited move to reclaim. So, what is the other the other goal is is creating a world of difference. Dugan calls that a multipolar world, and, and you you'll hear Sergey Lavrov using using that same language now today. That's the uh, um, Russian foreign minister. Russian foreign minister, um, where they're going to say, okay, we, we used to be in this world that seemed, everyone just seemed inextricably drawn in the current of the United States and the West and in lo- in global liberalism, global, global democracy, capitalism, and now we're breaking that off. And that 
you could call it a consolation prize if the imperial imperialist agenda doesn't work for Dugan, but I think it's I think it's more than that. He would rather see a larger Russia isolate itself from the world, be an island. Mm-hmm. But if it if it is Russia as currently constituted uh, that breaks itself off from the world, I think that's I'm not surprised that he's enthusiastic about that. That is what he wants. All right. I'm glad to hear you say that because this speech, and I'm going to urge people to listen to it. We will definitely link to it in the show notes. But the speech is terrifying if he were like your father, but he's not, if, you know, and he was just <laughs> saying like, we, it's like Mosquito Coast. Like we're just shipping out. Goodbye to everyone. We're doing it our way. Goodbye to modernity. <laughs> but, um, right. but it's not, it's slightly less terrifying if what you're worried about is World War Three. So because he is talking about some kind of isolation, I mean, some part of it makes mm-hmm. it seem like we're leaving and we're taking Ukraine with us because they're part of us. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is Eurasianism, which now I want to get you to get into more, but Eurasianism is not exactly about conquering other territories, but about Finlandizing them. Can you tell us about Eurasianism and Finlandizing? Sure, sure. It, it's... So, so Dugan wants to see a, a new integration of Eurasia, and and this is you know this is a when he says when he speaks about Eurasianism, this is this is really a different term that he uses for the expansion of the Russian state um, okay. across the Eurasian landmass, and but he the bigger the deeper again the philosophical goal of this mm-hmm. is is relegating Western liberalism from a position of universality. Mm-hmm. Um, to laying claim to the world, to forcing the rest of the world into its model in his mind, mm-hmm. to being one flavor among many, mm-hmm. not being the, the unipolar order, but instead a multipolar order. Yes. And it's part of the reason he he was he was also he was on the ground in South Ossetia during the during in two thousand eight with the conflict with Georgia between Russia, and and to him, it was imperative that Russia push back on Georgia. Not just for the sake of Georgia, but in his mind, if Russia established a boundary, think back to our earlier conversation about boundaries or no boundaries in the world. If Russia established a boundary, mm-hmm. it, it changes the, the status of boundaries everywhere. It changes the ontology of liberalism. It means that liberalism cannot spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's, there, there are limits to it. And so all of that is to say when, when he wants to see Eurasia spread itself out and blunt the advance of the United States and Western Europe, it is to to make it again just to contain it and to show that it's not the destiny of everybody. And it's just, you know, it's not just a matter of time until all the states in the world become be, become good Democrats in, in the Western model. He doesn't want in order to make that happen, there are some practical considerations. And one of them is that Europe not be integrated. Uh Finlandization, yes, it could be a servile state or it could just be small, insignificant islands that can't actually coalesce, coordinate in order to channel Western ideas mm-hmm. onto Russia. If you make Europe just a, a, a score of small small islands, it, that doesn't necessarily mean Russia's going to take them all over, but it just it means so much. They're so much more incapable in his mind of projecting power. So bre- that's the breaking up of NATO and, um, and also— European Union— uh, European Union, right? So, like, yes, and and every everybody having to get off the dollar and ju- and go back to a more yes. parochial idea of their national identities. One of the other ways that Dugan Dugan's speech sheds light on the current invasion 
is that Zelensky and Ukraine are kind of winning the PR war in the West, that no one could possibly take Russia's side in the world because we haven't seen this. But a a massive campaign of disinformation, um, you know, maybe not quite on par with what uh, Dugan advocated and Steve Bannon helped orchestrate in the U.S. in 2016 that Mm. turned us all against each other, partly turned us all against each other. Not on that scale, but... The Russian way is being sold right now to Nigeria, India, Iran, Malaysia, and Pakistan. So disinformation with all kinds of memes and hashtags and fun internet stuff is being sold to these countries where you'd think racists wouldn't have a lot of truck with these places. And yet Duganism does. Mm Mm-hmm. Duganism, I mean, it should, first, it should not be confused with white nationalism. Yeah. And, and I would really caution, especially any, any journalists or commentators listening to us to not, that, that's kind of like an, an exasperated, oh, I don't know what to make of this. We'll call it white nationalism. This is, it, it's fundamentally different. Yeah. For Dugan, the deeper aim is to unite all enemies of the West and in America in particular. Yeah, And it doesn't matter who they are. It, in, in the past, he's wanted to see collaborations between China, Mujahideen, Iran, Russia, bring them all together um, opposite opposite the United States. That's what it's going to take in order to defeat this, this ultimate evil in the West, mm-hmm. in his mind. And yeah, they probably, he, I think he still sees, sees room there. The one country that he is not getting, I think, as much play as he wants to, and it would not surprise me if he is there right now or has been there recently, is in fact Turkey. Mm. The the state that, yes, in the, in the late 1990s, he wanted to see destroyed. This, this deep eternal enemy of Russia. When it was secular. When it was secular. After the break, we'll discuss whether Dugan's ideologies could ever get traction outside of Russia. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. My guest is Benjamin Teitelbaum, the author of War for Eternity. We're discussing the philosophy of Alexander Dugan, and whether there's any chance it could catch on with anyone outside of Russia. Benjamin, I have a pressing question for you. Yes. Do you think, I guess this is the question, do you think that the appeal to the souls of people around the world in some collective idea of what their connections to tradition or the divine or transcendence is will supersede the appeal to their self-interest, to their desire to be democratic subjects, to have a vote, to have money, to have food, you know, to to have a what looks like a normal, 
you know, kind of liberal democracy adjacent society, parliamentarian, whatever it is. They don't have to look like America. But it is a big bet to say that I say care more about association with some imagined Gaelic past to do with leprechauns than with just, you know, having a credit card that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's the bet that Putin and Dugan in some ways seem to be making, that they'll Ukrainians and then maybe others will see themselves, Latvians or whatever, as spiritual kin of Russians. And for all that reason, they will accept this extraordinary idea of isolating themselves from the West. I don't know, Virginia, because what we're what we're talking about there is whether or not prosperity, material prosperity, can overcome tribal instincts. It, and what's going on in Russia and Ukraine is a, you know it's a separate question about wh- where really are the tribal instincts? Do they actually work in the way these ideologues want them to work? And that's 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 a separate question. But I think a lot of theorists who look at this say. If they're being pessimistic, I think they'd be forced to admit that it takes a lot of prosperity at times to overcome some tribalistic instincts, whether they're ethnic, racial, cultural, religious, in order to convince us to set them aside. And and it's a possibility that that, that the amount of prosperity that sustains a, a subduing of, of our tribalistic instincts really isn't sustainable. That, that's one way to look at this, and you end up in a pretty dark place to say, okay, well, we can, we can create multi-ethnic democracies. We can, we can support a new internationalism so long as everybody is, is, is being really sufficiently fed in a material sense. But if we, if we can't do that, if we're, if we're living beyond our means materially, you, you end up, again, in a pretty pessimistic state. But I don't – where, do where do we land in all this? I think you can look at a materialistic sort of Marxist-inspired account of history and human history and, and, and see a lot of evidence for it. See a lot of evidence for the fact that for – the, for the claim that really our, our nationalism, our religious behavior, our, our tribalistic behavior – is really all an, an afterthought, a sort of response to our material state of affairs that we live in. Um, you know, it's as Marx said, religion is the is the sigh of the oppressed creature, and then if you want to, uh, you know, the, the call to uh, alleviate illusions about a situation from Marx's perspective should actually be a call to alleviate the situation that requires illusions. Mm-hmm, mm. um, and that's that was Marx, Marx, Marx's critique of religion. The 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 flip side of that it's 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 a debate whether or not the resurgence of nationalism that we see throughout the world belongs to fits within Marx Marx's critique let's say mm-hmm. that that deeper internationalist materialist based cr- criticism that says that well the reason we're we're seeing a resurgence of tribalism is because of a material state of affairs mm-hmm. others would say no this was wrong from the beginning and it was foolish of you to think that you could actually change people's identities and their deep desires by giving them more money. I don't so I don't know. This is that's 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 at least the terrain where 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 I live when I think about a question like that. I realize that I put liberal democracy and market capitalism only in 
the discourse of kind of real realist politics that you know mm. that you would want prosperity and security and that you could be motivated as states as semi-rational actors or self-interested actors would pursue those things and that what's been good about the market revolution or neoliberalism is that it's created more prosperity and more sense at least of participation but there's another part of this which is human rights Mm-hmm. theory you know as um, yeah. as uh, as dugan would call it it's not just a new car i mean an investment in human rights and some enlightenment principles i mean you know we want to go easy and acknowledge that there are all kinds of ways of seeing the world but the enlightenment or human rights is not i don't think we can do better if there's any interest in creating what looks like i mean i may be unable to think outside the enlightenment but it seems like being humane to people around you, even if they're different from you, mm-hmm. and behaving in some way that we have something in common is ultimately is more binding on people than this than these tribalisms, especially where the tribalisms are increasingly made up. Yes. You know, it's like Zelensky being told, uh, you know, you're our spiritual kin or, you know, you, the Ukrainians are our spiritual kin. You are the oppressor on top of them where he heavily identifies with Ukraine. Then this curious fact that if we're talking about, you know, Chris, white Christian identity, Zelensky <laughs> is Jewish and he's being Ukrainian, Ukrainian Jew. And they're trying to tell him that he is, um, you know, somehow part of a Nazi regime. None of that adds up. I mean, it is as made up uh-huh. as some kind of Tolkien thing. And yes. so to think that that would supersede both some kind of just heartfelt baseline commitment to being humane plus the material advantages of being able to trade with the West seems like a tall order to me. But I may be more optimistic than you are. I hope you're right. I I don't want to see those instincts relativized and treated as just one way of dealing with human society and and human conflict among among others. I I, I hope that there is it that there that there is something that speaks for itself. One one piece of evidence that would speak in favor of what you're saying, I actually think this is not popular and I don't win friends from saying this, but if you look at the behavior of the European far right, mm-hmm. with a few exceptions, they uh, formerly Putin-friendly parties have flipped. And in some cases, there's a political, you can see a sort of strategic advantage for them doing that. In some cases, you can't. And and I'm not quite willing to say that that their moves are <laughs> have been taken entirely independently of the actual images that we're all seeing on the TV. If you look at Mariupol right now, mm-hmm. I think that that speaks for itself. There is, in fact, a domain of, of human behavior in a, a, a certain imposition that comes from seeing film and images of children being butchered that is going to move people beyond, you know, we're not just all political actors all the time. Yeah. So I wonder about that. That that makes me a little bit more optimistic, actually. Zelensky, he said this very simple thing in the beginning. It, I found it very moving. Oh, it was when Chernobyl was threatened. Um, and he said, I think originally he had said something about neighborliness, Right. And mm-hmm. it, it really speaks to a kind of um, Jewish worldview that there's like no reason in the diaspora that you're not Jewish. Right. Uh-huh. But and he's a Jewish head of a Christian country. It's I mean, one of few in history. Yes. And what he described is this. We are neighbors. What what culture could hate another culture? 
was one of the things he said. <laughs> Cultures aren't right. And yes. which is amazing thought, I think, you know, that, right. you know, no one's saying to Dugan that we don't like Kasha or vodka, or, you know, like, what would that even be to say? Well, how could one culturate another? Right. So that was the first thing. How can one culturate another? And then he said, you know, we mutually enrich, enrich each other. We don't dissolve into one another. Then he said, the thing that does dissolve is radiation in the earth, in the border between Ukraine and Russia. Right? Right. It's just like, at least we have in common our fragile bodies. Yes. And, right. and, that, and, and, and no culture can draw a hard line between, you know, you don't even have to talk about globalism. This type of devastation. Right? right? Yeah. I think he's up to some real reimagining of the way these cultural questions are addressed and under duress. I mean, I don't want to be yet another idolater of Zelensky, but I don't know. I wonder if you agree with me that there's something interesting being said to Dugan at all there. Absolutely. We're the adversary. And whether whether Putin and and Dugan admit that they they have a worthy adversary, I I think increasingly so in the, in the military front, but also in this, in this war of ideas, in the cultural front, I, I, I don't want to romanticize anyone either, and I hate being kind of on the bandwagon for for a movement. But Zelensky, wow, for being a pretty a pretty half rate politician and a pretty lousy president up until this point, yeah, um, it it shows that certain people can rise to their moment in history, and we are seeing something. He's a moral leader of uh, of the liberal democratic world, um, yeah, so. We're not going to see. He's not a philosopher. We're not going to see as elaborate a program as as his opponent Dugan in this case, as an ideological opponent would would put together. But we're we're getting the outlines of of a, a sort of renewed commitment a to popular will, which we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. um, about that being a sort of standard for for how political be- behavior ought to take place and how we ought to how we ought to treat each other. Um. But also for for respect and a certain a certain level of, of of honoring each other's mutual mutual dignity, I think I think it's there. It's it's very. I, I don't want to have too high of expectations for him to outline an ideological program again. But but Zelensky's powers, his symbolic power, ought to scare the Russians. Thank you so so much for being here, Benjamin. This has been really great. Awesome. Thank you so much for those questions, Virginia. Really fantastic. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's astounding episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, come at me on Twitter, at page 88 and at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Morgan Givens produced this episode with help from Brendan Burns and Josephine Martirana. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical.
Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.